Hi, this is Michelle Carlo, and this show is Fish Out of Agua. Last week, I had my first crush, my first kiss, and suffered the first death of a friend. I also got to see my favorite band at the time play my favorite song at the time. Only the price of the ticket was a mistaken identity beatdown during a high school race riot. This week, my family will be trapped inside the middle of a voodoo war. And later, I'll consider taking a second temporary freelance job that doesn't quite work out. Also, one of the most significant events in the decade for New York City and a large part of the eastern seaboard will also happen. <laughs> We've got a lot going on this week, kids, so there's not too much time for blah blah blahing, so let's get the mood set with this song from Santana and their 1970 album Abraxas and Black magic woman.
And we're back with Fish Out of Agua on Radio Free Brooklyn and Chapter 25, Night of the Black Chrysanthemum. We were living around the corner from St. Peter's Church in the Bronx, one of the oldest buildings in all of New York City, which dated back to the 1600s. A large part of my childhood was spent in that church graveyard, reading faded tombstones, trying to catch praying mantises, or looking around fresh graves for a fat wallet because my cousin Benny once found a $50 bill near one. Kids always played there, probably because it was the only place with trees and grass for blocks that wasn't an abandoned lot. And I felt totally comfortable there. The spirit world didn't bother me. I'd been aware of it my entire life. Because when you grew up Latin, traditions from hundreds of years of varied forms of worship color your everyday life. For instance, did the Ophelia kept a glass of holy water behind her door, so if anything evil ever followed her into the house, it would fall in and drown. Diti Carmen had a special plant that she'd break out to make a tea whenever someone couldn't sleep. And my mother had a rosary with multicolored glass beads. And when she sat praying next to a window and the light was just right, it looked as if she was counting rainbows in her hands. But no holy water, no tilo leaves, and no Our Fathers could have prepared any of us for the great voodoo war of 1976. Over ten years before, my father had been the first Puerto Rican family to ever live in our building, and for a time we endured the Italian and Irish families complaining that our food stank, our music was too loud, and we kids ran wild through the halls. Like Italians are quiet, the Irish are peaceful, and garlic doesn't stink. Right. So, when two more Latin families moved on to our floor, we thought we'd have new allies. But both the Garcia and the Morales families kept to themselves. The adults didn't speak much English, and the teenagers didn't listen to Led Zeppelin of Black Sabbath and were therefore useless. <laughs> My mother found out that the two new families came from the same town back in Puerto Rico and that there was bad blood between them, to which my father said, Well, if they didn't like each other over there, why the hell did they move in together here? After a couple of weeks, we found out. We never knew what started this installment of their war, but it was obvious that it had been going on far longer than even they could remember. First, there was the cursing. Oh, not the usual, screw you, you monofall son of a bitch, kind of cursing, but proclamations, threats for barren wombs, incurable diarrhea and brain tumors, unemployment, insanity, and more diarrhea. It actually would have been funny if they hadn't sounded so serious. One day I came home from school to find three pennies in a triangle in front of the Morales' door with some white powder sprinkled around them. I picked them up and showed them to my mother and she opened the window, threw them right out of the window, and then made me wash my hands with lava soap, siang, and alcohol, and told me not to ever even look at anything near either of their apartments ever again. Only every couple of days there was something else to not look at, like kernels of corn arranged in strange shapes, dead black flowers, or strange-looking candles. The arguments got worse, too. Almost every night we'd hear them in the hall, 
only now I could understand what they were saying because it was all in Spanish. But I did know that there were words that I didn't recognize my family using. My brother and I would just look up from our homework at my mother or father and they would just look at each other and turn the television up louder. Then one afternoon, I did something I hadn't done in years. I went to St. Peter's graveyard to be alone. I had just found out that yet another boy I had had a total crush on said I had a nice ass, but an ugly face. I sat down under a tree with the intention of crying, and I saw a piece of mail addressed to the Moraleses, smeared in what looked like blood, and worse, a pair of what looked like freshly cut chicken feet was neatly tied around them with red string. I forgot all about boys, dumb boys, and I ran home and told my mother what I had seen, and she went straight to the Garcia's door and knocked. And when no one answered, she said, I know you're in there, and I know what you're doing. You have to stop. It is not sanitary. Children play in that graveyard. A voice behind the door told my mother in heavily accented English, Mind your being there or you're going to be next. And the next day, there was a skinned, crucified mouse taped to the Morales' door. And they moved out later that night. We could hear them screaming and crying, hurling generation upon generation of curses upon the Garcias and everyone else in the building. My mother was beyond furious. This is not right. Somebody's got to do something. Kevin said, What are you going to do, get Titi Carmen's plant after them? No, she said. Worse. And she went into her bedroom and shut the door. What had once been a simple clash between the Puerto Rican Hatfields and McCoys had now become Armageddon because when my mother went into the bedroom, she opened up her Bible and she read it out the window, out loud, non-stop, the remainder of that day and into the next day. Did I say non-stop? When my brother and I left for school in the morning, she was at the window. When we came back, she was at the window. When my father almost burned down the kitchen trying to make us dinner, she was at the window. And every once in a while, one of the Garcias would yell something at her, and that only served to make her read even louder, and now only in Spanish. My father tried reasoning with her, but when she started reading the Bible at him too, he suddenly decided he needed to work a triple shift, abandoning my brother and me on the front lines. We, tr we tried to launch a counterattack by blasting late-night reruns of The Honeymooners and Rat Patrol from our little 12-inch black-and-white television, but we were no match for the almighty word of God. How so? Because not only did neither of us get one minute of sleep, but we found out the next morning that the Garcias had moved out sometime in the middle of the night. And what's more, silently. As I was about to leave bleary-eyed for school, my mother, looking as fresh as ever, asked me to take out the garbage. When I got down to the alleyway, I saw a pile of house stuff with pieces of paper, some balled up among them. I took a closer look and realized they were pages torn from a Bible. I looked up and I saw our windows between what had been the Morales' and Garcia's windows.
So not only had my mother spoken the word of God, she hurled it at them. And so the Great Voodoo War of 1976 was stopped with the one weapon no curse on this earth has any power against, the righteous fury of a Latina mother scorned. And even though my mother later said she thought she needed to repent for tearing up the word of God, I didn't think so. Yeah, it might have been crazy. Well, yeah, I kind of was crazy. But think about it. My mom was also ahead of her time. She had Sinead O'Connor beat by a whole 16 years. Clang, clang. Clang, 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 clang. Yeah, that's me doing a bad imitation of some church bells, which I thought would be a good thing to end that story with. But we're working on that, people. It's all an evolution. And speaking of evolution, it's now time to showcase Fish Out of Agua's Guest Artist of the Week. We're going back to the Lower East Side and the open mics and the alt-comedy and performance scene art store days for this one. So hang on and, hey, look at that. That's a sound effect. Woohoo! <laughs> hey, it's Michelle Carlo again with Fish Out of Agua's Guest Artist of the Week. All right, I'm going back to the day here a little bit to the beginnings of this century when I was an art star going to the open mics at Collective Unconscious and Surf Reality and there was a like-minded group of wonderfully deranged individuals that did a lot of creative stuff, some of whom I've remained friends with to this very day and one of them is sitting here with me right now and her name is Tia Shellstedt. Hi, Tia. Hi. <laughs> yeah, I don't really use my, my real last name a lot, so I don't blame you for stumbling on that. Yeah. Shellstead. Well, Shell was my teenage nickname when I, so that's kind of funny, you know? Right, yeah. right. Yeah. Um, it was the stat. That's my dad, that was my dad's nickname and my grandfather's nickname, huh. Shell. Look at that. Yeah. See, maybe we're related somehow. <laughs> yeah. Actually, that was kind of going to be uh, my name, but um, they. Shell? Yeah. Shell, well, well, Shell. Michelle. They were going to oh. name me Michelle because um, my mom's name is Sangmi. She's Korean. And so me and then Shell. So they were going to put it together. Yeah, I that's, really like that. That's actually kind of cute. Yeah, yeah. So when I met Tia at <laughs> um, the open mics, I was doing my performance art character called Carmen Mafongo, and I'm going to let Tia tell you what she was up to. Well, um, I actually was on a blind date. I, I mean, I was on a, a like a Match.com date. Um, and, uh, I, uh, it was a performance artist. Um, he, uh, wait, was it Warren? Took, no. Um, this, that, this was Jason, oh, Jason Stella. Stella. Jason, yeah. yeah, I remember that. Yeah. Uh, who famously, um, put his thumb up his butt on stage during one of his, um, acts. I think that may have been his, uh, his greatest accomplishment there. Was that a Mr. Um, Lowry side or was that just no, a random it was a, Sunday night? just a set. Yep. Yeah, wow. Yeah. Uh, um, but I, I wasn't there. I didn't happen to be there that night. But anyway, um, I went there. He brought me there on a date and, um, you know, I, uh, I really enjoyed um, the format and all the performers there and eventually the community. Um, I am very interested in... Um, in communities that form around things other than institutions um, or religions. Um, and uh, I, I, at the time, 
um, was writing a novel since having been abandoned. Um, uh, abandoned that boyfriend too, um, ended up marrying another art star who I met there, um, and uh, having a child. Um, so yeah, I stopped writing the novel, um, but I, I, I like to talk, and I like to talk <laughs> about myself. Whoa, and, that's a good thing. It's a good thing that you're here with me today. Right. Then. Well, there was a lot of talking, as you know, out yes. in the hallway. Yes. Um, and uh, eventually, people started saying, like, "Why don't you talk on stage?" Because I was, I tend to dominate conversations, so I, I might as well be on stage. I can attest. Like, I've ridden the train <laughs> to work with her. A appropriate to have only one person talking when you're on stage. So um, I did end up going up on stage and doing various things, but I never really identified as a performer. So it was funny that you you described um, me to myself that way before we started well, recording. That's how, I, that's how I thought of you. I mean, I saw you get up and do things. I mean, I wouldn't have called you a stand-up comedian. I wouldn't have, I didn't know what was not funny enough. It was just, no. <laughs> Michelle says I'm not funny. <laughs> Well, no, I actually stand up. No, that's not what I meant at all. Stand up is just a totally different um, type of, of performance. I'm not good at it because I'm not good at setup and punchline. Right. If you're not good at setup and punchline and writing those sort of jokes, you're not going to make it to stand up. Right. Well, there wasn't a lot of that there on the scene either. Uh, you know, it was like alt comedy. Yeah. Right? It was, I mean, it was I the didn't 90s and laughs. the early 2000s. It was that whole alt performance scene that was right. going on. People would get up and just like strip themselves naked and stand there for eight minutes. So and people, put their thumbs up their butts. Yeah, you know. yeah. Um, but it was, uh, it all, all in good fun. I, um, it was amazing. The I guess I saw my role um, going up on stage, um, which I said many times, was to encourage other people to go up on stage too. Ooh. And um, and. I was, like I said, really interested in the community aspect of it. You know, we we met every Sunday, and uh, so it was kind of like alt church. And uh, we actually ended up having Faceboy uh, perform our marriage ceremony. Really? I, yeah, I wanted to oh, acknowledge awesome. his role as a leader of the community, and. Um, so I, I would always say that I got I was getting up on stage to kind of open it up and have maybe other people not feel so um, inhibited and 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 uh, by not being funny to encourage other people who weren't that funny to also speak, <laughs> which you may or may not appreciate. <laughs> well, to me the great no, you're totally right, Tia. And and to me the great thing about about art stores about that whole scene with the open mics and which even segued into Bowery Poetry Club for a little bit in, in the mid-aughts, was that you, there was like no fucking judgment. Like, you went to those rooms, you paid your $3 admission or whatever, and you got your six or eight minutes on stage, and you could suck as much as you wanted. Right. And you could get, and there would be like no judgment. You could just get up there every And no week, heckling. And no heckling. And, and, yeah, and you would just suck until you either got good at what you were doing or you just like slunk off and, and went away and went on with your life. And like for me, that was so like amazing because I got to try on so many hats, so to speak. And then I ended up being a writer and a storyteller and a solo performer. But like without those open mics, I never would have found my voice. And that's all of what this whole thing is about. It's like finding your voice and who you are. And um, uh, Tia, I know that you're, you're half Asian and half European. So as, as a person of color, sometimes our voices are not heard. They're marginalized. And as the mother of a mixed-race child, I'm sure that that is on your mind also. 
Yeah, I mean, I, uh, uh, I, I am always aware of um, representing um, and trying to um, disrupt people's expectations of what I would be like as an Asian woman. I mean, I'm half Asian, but um, I, you know, I might as well be Asian. I mean, you know, if you're you if you're half something, yeah. then you're you're that. Yeah. But um, but uh, you know, I, I do want to say about the art star scene. But we, we, even though we're segueing here, that's that, okay. We'll go back that, to it. You know, um, that it was really the women that I met there um, who really. Um, became like such a core um, uh, inspiration to yeah, me. Yeah, let's shout out some of them. So many girl bomb, smart definitely. Women. Yeah, girl bomb. Oh, if, when, um, when she wrote her book, that made me think that I could do one, and she encouraged there me you so go. much. So and, many yeah. books came out of that scene too, even though I was performing. Because, like you said, it was like working out ideas mm -hmm. with an, uh, yeah. a, an audience. Writers for television came out of that scene. It, it's amazing the talent that that came out of those rooms at like two o'clock in the morning, drunk, right, um, <laughs> and smoking weed, right. So, um, but uh, but but so um, I would also say on stage that you know I, I'm so lucky that as an Asian woman, my job in battling discrimination is or, or prejudice is to act like um, an irresponsible partying kind of um, vulgar person because of course people expect Asian women to be quiet and um, subservient so I kind of have a fun job to do um, <laughs> when I'm dealing with that so that. like the anti-Asian right so but I mean so it's interesting that that my child is a quarter Asian now and it's sort of something that I'm kind of um, we were, you know, we were talking about on the subway, you and I, when we ran into he each other. He presents as a mixed race child, right? I he mean, does. yeah, yeah. He, he doesn't present like like I present. I think mostly European. Like if you if you look at me, right. you can see the other. Right. But like at first glance, he does present as a mixed race child, which is gorgeous. He's right. so handsome. My God, makes me wish I was seven years old again. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, I um, you know, I have to start. I didn't mean that the way I sounded. Like... I'm not stalking her son. <laughs> Like, you know, like school applications and things like that. You know, it's just now starting to be that, you know, you, there's an other um, uh, box. Or sometimes there's a box that says biracial. But then sometimes I, I, I get the sense that biracial really means half black. So that I'm not biracial, mm. you know, um, and also does it mean it has to be evenly distributed, like half and half? And, you know, there's a lot of questions that that um, aren't answered yet when it comes to someone who's a quarter Asian. Um, and, and like, why <laughs> is the need there to like categorize people? I remember when I was, um, what, I mean, you know, I was all... I, the whole point of Fish Out of Agua was that I was caught in this race conundrum because I was not too much of one thing and I was half en enough of another and it was just a big mess. And when it was time for me to go through my um, uh, financial aid applications to go to, to go to School of Visual Arts, I was just so tired of anything that had to do with race and ethnicity. When I filled out the application, I put race, human, and ethnicity, other, right. and I'd got no money and I wasn't and I wasn't going to be able to go to school because my parents couldn't pay. Right. And there's one beautiful, compassionate uh, guidance counselor named Pam, oh God, what was her name? Oh God, her name was Pam something, I can't think of it now. But she was like, she pulled me aside because she knew what I was and she's like, Michelle, you're doing yourself a disservice here. So I was like, okay, so I have to own who I am. Right. You know, and at Surf Reality, I was the only, port I was the only, I was the Puerto Rican. Right. And I have red hair and freckles. So right. So it's weird. 
Right. I mean, you know, it's weird being Asian because um, we actually are, you know, discriminated against because, um, th you know, there's so many Asians um, in, uh, you know, the desirable schools because, you know, Asians tend to um, do really well on tests. So, um, you know, I mean, of course, our new whatever the hell he is, uh, advisor to the president, whatever the hell his title is, Bannon um, did, you know, said that there's too many Asians in, in Silicon Valley. Um, so when you but, say Asians are, are discriminated against in school, can you elaborate on that? Oh, what yeah, exactly well, do just, you mean? Just that For being smart? Well, um... Uh, and why do you think that would be? Well, because you have to compete against other Asians because, you know, um, there are... Uh, Quotas, you know, um, for for schools, uh, right, right. So um, uh, if if I put down Asian on my application, I better have a sixteen hundred on my SATs oh, or whatever the perfect score is these days. Okay. I, I think it's it's different, you know. And and there's studies have shown that Asian students um, are are looked at for test scores and not necessarily for um, extracurricular, you know, creative um, pursuits or or things like, like that. Stars. Like it's like if I get my Asian, you know, application, then I'm going to, you know, I'm going to fill that this way. Um, I mean, when I went to high school, new, when I started high school, um, the guidance counselor actually put me into AP chemistry. Okay, if, if anyone what, what knows me, um, oh, advanced placement. Okay. Um, so, uh, uh, oh, um, live and, radio people. Um, and, uh, and uh, I, I, I failed immediately. Um, and, uh, you know, clearly I am not um, a science or math person. Um, I think that's probably pretty obvious. <laughs> um, but that's all that, that, that guidance counselor saw, you know. So, so um, do, do you think that that competitiveness is, is something that's pervasive in Asian culture? Or is that something that, like, the outside culture kind of, like, makes happen, so therefore makes true? Um, well, I mean, do you understand what I mean? Yeah, I mean, well, the thing is, is that um, in in China and Korea, um, uh, the tradition is that that, that in order to get a, a position um, in government, even going back to ancient times, you would have to pass a civil service exam. So there was actually a, a little bit of like you know meritocracy um, in Asian culture, where where even if you were low born or lower born, you if you did well on exams, you could actually have a high position in government. Oh. So very entrenched in Asian culture is is uh, is this idea of um, studying hard in school. And achieving um, high uh, high grades and high um, test results, um, so this this is a completely ingrained in, in Asian culture. So that Asian kids actually do tend to do really well. Now, is, is it different between girls and boys? Like, for example, a girl child and and a boy child are the expectations the same or different? Like, how do you think this is going to be affecting Walter? Um, well, it doesn't affect him at all. We don't make him do his homework. He actually is in. He just told us he got in trouble actually, um, and kept in from recess for not doing his homework. Um, we don't believe in um, pushing uh, um, pushing kids in school. I, I think it's counterproductive. You know, I think it kills creativity. Um, but um, in terms of, I mean, like my mother. Uh, my grandmother was one of the first Korean women to go to uh, go to college. I mean, 
There wow. is a tradition of female scholarship, but it's not necessarily, okay. you know, there's definitely a gender thing going on there. Um, but um, like my cousins, my Korean cousins who grew up in West Virginia, um, they, they, when they got home from school, their mom, you know, stood over them with a, a, a you know, and made them do... With a chopstick. Yeah, yeah. I, I don't know. I was going to say with a paddle, but that's not with even true. With a chopstick. But, hey, but actually... A Puerto they, Rican grandma would have the chunklet at a slipper, so you're going right. to have the chopstick. Well, like, like when my mom was in school, they would get um, a wrap on the knuckles with a ruler for every point they got under a t- certain test score. Their their names were up on the blackboard in order of their t- of their grade point average. That's crazy. You yeah, know what? Yeah, the yeah. more I swear, change is like the friggin' new same. So I'm gonna ask you one last question to you before we wrap up. Um, today, as we're doing this interview, is um, Thursday, February the second, 2017, and of course we've seen a lot going on since a certain number 45 was elected. So I would like you to answer this question: What is your greatest fear and your greatest hope? for your son growing up in the U.S. now? Um, my greatest fear is that um, democracy will no longer exist, and therefore there will be all kinds of repercussions from that, you know, environmental um, violence. Um, and uh, my greatest hope is that uh, it just seems like um, more Americans are certainly learning a lot more about um, the details of our government and um, getting involved. And um, people seem very enthusiastic about making a change. I mean, we are the majority and we have the internet. I keep saying that. <laughs> and, and thank you for sharing your story with us at Fish Out of Agua. So- and we're back on Radio Free Brooklyn. In 1977, when the next story of Fish Out of Agua happened, the average cost of a new house was $49,300. Prices are going up, people, but so is income. The average income was $15,000. And your average monthly monthly rent was just $240. I say just because it was like $40 like 10 years ago. Now, a gallon of gas would set you back 65 cents. That brand new bikini was 9 bucks, And the BMW 320i to drive around wearing that bikini was $7,990. That new car, man, that's a lot of money. So, in the world, the United States returned the Panama Canal back to Panama. Prime Minister Indira Gandhi of India resigns from office. And the first Apple II computers went on sale. Well, that didn't happen in the world. Oh, yeah, that did happen in the world. Okay, so in the United States, Jimmy Carter... Upon his inauguration in January, granted pardons to American draft dodges of the Vietnam War, thus closing that chapter for now. Dr. Martin Luther King also got a posthumous Presidential Medal of Freedom, and Amnesty International got the Nobel Peace Prize. Also in New York City, the Twin Towers, also known as the World Trade Center, was completed. The first MRI scanner was tested in Brooklyn, and Son of Sam otherwise known as the 44 caliber killer who had terrorized New York City for nearly two years, murdering six and wounding, maiming seven young men and women sitting in parked cars throughout the five boroughs, was finally arrested, all because of a parking ticket. 
It was said that he, I'm not mentioning the criminal's name, you can go wiki it if you want, just like I did. No, I didn't have to wiki it because I lived through it. But it was said that he favored women with long dark hair. And that led to almost everyone I knew back then either cutting their hair or dying at blonde that year. And people used to say to me, Michelle, Michelle, you got red hair, looks, looks brown in the dark. But luckily, I escaped that. Popular movies in 1977. Check out this list, people. Star Wars, Rocky, Saturday Night Fever, Annie Hall, Close Encounters of the Third Kind. Do, 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 do. <laughs> Born this year were Shakira, Orlando Bloom, Buffy the Vampire Slayer, otherwise known as Sarah Michelle Geller, and Kanye West. Died this year? Oh, it's almost as bad as 2016. Elvis Presley, Charlie Chaplin, Joan Crawford, Bing Crosby, the writer of Lolita, Vladimir Nakobov, uh, Mark Bolan from T-Rex, Groucho Marx, opera diva Maria Callas, and Chico and the Man star, 22-year-old Freddie Prinze. Popular songs were basically anything from Saturday Night Fever or Fleetwood Mac, and at the cusp of being popular was the new British invasion. Their form of the punk rock started in New York City a few years before, led by the Sex Pistols and The Clash. But as for me... I still had my guilty pleasure of liking Elton John and this song, which reminds me of hanging out with my girls back in the day. Day, 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 day.
And now chapter 26 from Fish Out of Agua. Keep me searching for an ounce of gold. There was a year and a half when Nikki, Dawn, Janie, and I were as inseparable as only a quartet of 16 and 17-year-old girls can be. We shared everything, our makeup, our record albums, our secret crushes, our clothes, and our weed. Let me rephrase, lest you write us off as an idle group of stoners. We went places and did things with our weed. We went to Orchard Beach, Section 13, of course. We went to the movies, Tommy, The Song Remains the Same, Billy Jack, The Rocky Horror Picture Show. And we went to a Star Trek convention, which was my idea, where we were denied entry. Hmm, I wonder why. But intrepid Nikki and I found the back elevator that the four of us ran into, not checking if it was going up or down, and who was standing inside but Mr. Spock, Leonard Nimoy himself. The four of us stared as he stood in Vulcan silence, and I was about to ask him for his autograph, for my brother Kevin, of course, when Dawn came out of her stupor and started screaming, It's Spock! Oh my God! It's Spock! Needless to say, Mr. Nimoy got off at the next floor, tempted, no doubt, to have given the Vulcan neck pinch to all of us. Oh, yes, the four of us girls sashayed along St. Peter's Avenue in our Lee jackets and Land jeans with huge safety pins and fringe suede pouches hanging from our belt loops. We stumbled along cracked pavement on our buffalo sandals. We all double-pierced our left ears. I was the only one that had had no ear piercings, which, when you think about it, is quite unusual since I was born into a culture where six-month girls often sported gold-studded earlobes. But my mother didn't believe in it. She had told me when I asked that God had given you all the holes you need. But one evening, 
Nikki took out her Nana's piercing earrings. Fourteen-carat yellow-gold instruments of torture imported straight from Sicily with gold balls on one end and miniature ice picks on the other. Nikki rubbed ice on my ears, and then she swabbed them with Bactine. We shared a bottle of Tango as Dawn and Janie held down my arms while Nikki stuck the earrings into the carefully marked pen dots she had drawn on my earlobes. Since I hadn't had any piercings at all, and I had opted to have three of them because I wanted to be different, I had to endure triple pain that night. But it was worth it. A month later, I walked into Titi Ophelia's Easter dinner wearing a three-inch-long purple feather, a cross, and a skull and watched my mother ignore Ophelia's outburst. I've gotten my ears pierced four more times since then, but Nikki's piercings, they were the ones that healed the fastest and gave me the least trouble. Oh, yeah. Me, Shell, Nikki, who over the past year had naturally grown into and now deserved the nickname of Boom Boom, Dizzy Dawn, who had outgrown both her glasses and braces and had become a real beauty, and baby Janie, who was still the baby because she was still tiny except for her huge hazel eyes, and she was still the most daring out of all of us, we were the self-described Fly Four, and when Nikki, our leader, was about to turn 18, which was legal age, we knew that we had to do something special for her. But a set of Bonnie Bell lip glosses or Love's Baby Soft wasn't going to cut it, and neither was a copy of Pink Floyd's Animals, or a Fudgy the Whale Cake. Nope. Only weed would do for this momentous birthday. Or specifically, an ounce of pure Acapulco gold. So yeah, Shell, how are we going to get that? Dawn asked at a pre-birthday powwow at Janie's house. Yeah, that was a good question, as I was the only one with an actual job. I was now working 20 hours a week at Macy's in Parkchester for $2.35 an hour, half of which I had to give to my parents. And this left me with about $15 of spending money a week, which left me, um, <clears throat> us, over $40 short of our ounce of gold. It was the beginning of June. We had a little less than a, we had a little over a month as Nikki's birthday was three days after mine on July 13th. Dawn thought we should try to do a kissing booth in the lunchroom at school. It's summer. Everybody wants to make out. Huh, yeah, who's going to pay you to kiss you when they can get it for free? <laughs> said Janie, and then while she and John, she and Dawn good-naturedly bickered, I, as usual, started thinking about myself. <laughs> I complained how I had bought a hit of windowpane acid for the Led Zeppelin concert I had gone to the week before, and how it was beat. A dud. No trip. Not one little bit. Three dollars out of my precious fifteen dollars wasted. And I was going on and on about how, well, Led Zeppelin's just not the same when you only can drink one or two beers when Janie interrupted. That's it! Huh? Dawn and I said. Janie repeated. That's it! We sell beet acid, and that's how we get the money. <laughs> yeah, right, said Dawn. Yeah, I'm just going to go to Woolworths and five-fingered Nikki some Love's Baby Soft, and you two, you could take it on the hop. See ya. Oh, yeah, Janie said. You faggot. Right, Shell? The scary thing was, I actually thought we could get away with it, 
even though the only time I ever attempted anything close to dealing was once, when I sold some loose joints to get money for a concert ticket. But that had been a consolation gift for enduring a mistaken identity beatdown, and was, therefore, in my eyes, totally different. There were only a couple of weeks left of school, though, so we had to think fast. I gave Janie ten dollars. She put in the rest, and she bought as many different types of acid as she could. She always knew where to get drugs. Two days later, we looked at her purchases side by side on her night table. There was one hit each of window pane and blotter, one hit each of chocolate and strawberry mescaline, and a half a hit of orange double-barrel sunshine. Well, the fruit flavors were out, as they were actual pills and could no way be imitated, and so was the window pane, which looked like a piece of compressed dry-cleaning bag. But the blotter... The blotter acid was just a small square of paper that was slightly stained. Janie picked it up. No eating the sample, I said, and I grabbed it. We split up the rest. After the weekend, when our brain synapses were normal again, we met back in Janie's room to make the beet acid. On observation, I had discovered that the square of blotter, pa- blotter paper was pretty much close to the graph paper we used in art class, so I stuck a few sheets in my notebook from class. I had also five-fingered, which means taken, shoplifted, an exacto knife. Janie had an eyedropper that she had taken from her five-fingered <laughs> from her grandmother's medicine cabinet, and two cans of soda, RC cola, and Fanta orange. We figured we wouldn't be greedy, and we would only do the exact amount we needed, 40, since we both agreed we would chip in $10 each. You got money now? I asked Janie. Where'd you get a job? No, really. I've been helping Jackie Scongeal at the Huntington. Jackie Scongeal was a major pot dealer who hung out at the end of Ampere Avenue in a clearing just inside Pelham Bay Park called the Huntington a place the real hardcore pot and pillheads hung out. It had even been rumored that a few of those boys that hung out there had fed some acid to a stray dog and laughed as it chased his tail until it collapsed. I didn't think that was cool to do in an, to an animal, and I said so. Ah, oh, come on, Shao, I wasn't there when they did that, Janie said. We got to work. My job was to cut, and Janie's was to stain. It took a while to make the 40 tabs. Some of them didn't come out straight, and some had too much color or too little. I cut my knee when the exacto knife slipped out of my hand and jabbed me right through my jeans, but finally, we had our 40 tabs of blotter, which we put into an envelope. I decorated it with the Zofo symbols from Led Zeppelin IV for luck, and we were all set to open up shop and school the next day. We didn't think about what would happen if we were caught. We didn't think about what would happen to us when people found out that we were selling fake stuff, that it didn't work. We didn't think. Period. We had decided to sell our wares at the deep discount price of $1 each. We figured that they would sell quicker and that no one would complain much if they didn't get off since it only cost a dollar. It wasn't all that uncommon to have a tab of beet acid from time to time, as what happened to me when I went to see Led Zeppelin, so we were counting on that to save us from any retribution. Business sucked. The first week, we sold only five, and we started to panic. School would be over soon, and we couldn't sell it to the people we actually hung out with. 
At least, I wasn't going to. But then a miracle happened. Pink Floyd was going to play a bunch of concerts at Madison Square Garden in the beginning of July, so we sold five more. And then we started to get a couple of repeat customers from the first wave, and they said things like, well, it, only took, it took a long time to get off and it only lasted 10 minutes, but hey, it's only a dollar, so what the fuck? Or, that last tab was beat, but hey, it was only a dollar, so let me try another one. This is when I started having really bad dreams. Dreams about Diane Linkletter, who had taken acid back in the 60s and jumped out of a window. And Karen Quinlan, who had taken a bunch of quaaludes and drank a bunch of vodka, and who now was a vegetable. I would wake up gasping for breath, and I started thinking, well, well, what if people thought they actually got off and they thought they were a bird and they jumped off a roof? Wouldn't that be our fault? But when I mentioned this to Janie, she said, That being such a faggot, Shell. Look, I sold another two hits. I tried confining in Dawn, but she said, I told you I told you not to do it, Shell. I don't know what's up with Janie lately. She's getting to be a real burnout. School ended. Janie and I met up again in her room the day after my birthday. Nikki's birthday <clears throat> was that Wednesday, and we had only sold 15 tabs. Then I started to feel guilty about not helping her after I started having the bad dreams, so I gave Janie $20, the extra $10 coming from part of my birthday money. That still only made $35, but Janie said, Don't worry, I'll go to the Huntington. I know people. I sure hope she did, because Janie, Dawn, and I had gone to every park schoolyard and corner hangout in three neighborhoods inviting kids to Nikki's party. We had to deliver. But I didn't want to go with Janie to cop, and I said so. Ah, that's cool, she said. I'll take Dawn. I was surprised that Dawn would go with her, but I said nothing. The night of Nikki's party, I passed the park on the way to her apartment, her family's apartment, and I saw kids were starting to congregate behind the pool, drinking beer and hanging out, Waiting. Janie and Dawn had gone up to Pelham Bay Park at about five or six and said they'd be back within an hour. And my job was to stall Nikki until seven. And after we'd done our makeup, blown out our hair, and listened to most of Quadrophenia, Nikki finally said, Come on, Shell, let's go. I gotta be home by one o'clock. One a.m.? <sighs> I could see there were some advantages to being eighteen. We got to the park a little after seven, and Janie and Dawn weren't there. But there were a group of maybe 40 other kids yelling, Happy birthday, Nikki Boom Boom! And within minutes, she was surrounded with presents. A quart of Schaefer beer, a bottle of Yago Sangria, a gift set of Love's Baby Soft, and a copy of Pink Floyd's Animals. Where's Janie and Dawn? she asked. Well, they're coming, I said. But 7.30, 8 quarter after eight came and went and no Janie, no weed. People were starting to get antsy. Most of the girls had to be home by 11 or 11.30 and nobody yet had a buzz. It was almost nine o'clock when Janie and Dawn finally burst in. Ah, sorry, man. The man was following us, Janie said, and she reached down into the front of her jean shorts. Happy birthday, Boom Boom. This is from Dawn and me. Everybody cheered. Nikki hugged them both. 
I was stunned. Dawn and her? Wait, wait a second. I was the one who had given Janie the idea. I was the one who still had a piece of scab on her knee. I was the one who had had the bad dreams. And I was the one who had put in $20 of my own friggin' money. And I opened my mouth to tell Nikki that Janie was full of it. When Nikki opened the brown envelope and took out a baggie stuffed with what looked like the purest Acapulco gold ever. Everyone started cheering again. Someone pulled out a huge piece of rolling paper that they said came from Cheech and Chong's Big Bamboo album. Yeah, man, let's roll the biggest bone in the Bronx and then we can do a coconut. Yeah! As everybody crowded around Nikki and Janie and Dawn started rolling, I hung back. I suddenly wasn't in a party mood anymore. So I backed away and I started walking out of the park to go home. As I climbed through a hole in the fence on one side, I saw a cop car pull up to the other. And then I got scared, but it was too far for me to go back to warn them, too far for me to yell to be heard, even though I knew that the cops hadn't seen me. Was Nikki's party going to be busted? I had to know, so I ducked into Artie's deli and bought a bag of crunchy cheese doodles to stall for time. But as I was leaving the deli, all the streetlights on the block suddenly went dim. They went really bright for an instant, and then they went out. I didn't know what else to do, so I just went straight home, as people in the buildings above started opening up their windows and yelling to each other. It was the night of the infamous New York City blackout of 1977. I later found out that when the cops came, half of the kids ran through the fence I had just gone through and the other half hid under the pool. And Janie, Dawn, and Nikki were literally literally left holding the bag. One of the cops grabbed the baggie, opened it, sniffed it, and started cracking up. <laughs> Stupid girl smoking catnip. <laughs> but then the lights went out. And the cops had a lot more to worry about than three teenage girls with beet marijuana. Fordham Road, among many other New York City neighborhoods, was completely looted that night. I heard from my friend Gina Ray, who, who used to hang out at PS14 up in Throg's Neck with her boyfriend, that they had caught the last number 40 bus going to Westchester Square, and when they got off, they saw men with shotguns in front of several stores. I walked up the five flights of stairs to my family's apartment in the dark. My mother had just gotten off the phone with my father when the lights went out. He was in Florida with Kevin. Grandma Izzy was really, really sick. I had wanted to go down with them, but I couldn't get off from work. My mother put the police, my mother put the police lock on the door and jammed a mop and a broom against the two windows that led to the fire escape, and we went to bed in silence. The lights wouldn't come back on until the next evening. The cops had let Janie, not Janie, Dawn, and Nikki go, but things weren't quite the same with us afterwards. Nikki and Dawn wouldn't speak to Janie for the rest of the summer, and even though her friends at the Huntington had sold her the beetweed, she started hanging out there more and more, and she now had a new nickname, Janie the Waste. And as for me... I luckily didn't get blamed for anything. Nikki even said it was the thought that counted. And I never, ever 
was tempted to deal drugs ever again. Janie actually asked me to help her out once or twice, but I said no. I saw what had happened. It was like that old commercial for battling tops. For every action, there's an equal and opposite reaction. You beat someone, you get beat in return. And besides, it was kind of nice to be able to sleep in peace again. And that's our show. This has been Fish Out of Agua on Radio Free Brooklyn. And if you've liked what you've heard today or in a past episode, please consider sponsoring us. Just go to the Fish Out of Agua page on RadioFreeBrooklyn.com and click on the green button that says Sponsor the Show. It's that easy. Stay tuned for Brooklyn Bandstand next, and we'll leave you with a little bit from a comedy album that was quite popular back then from Cheech and Chong. It actually had a big, giant, big bamboo rolling paper. I swear on my red hair. This is called The Bust. See you next week. Please. Two lids. One letter, two lids. One, two, there was three lids. There was two. Acid. Where's the psilocybin?